I want to start today off with a question. I want to ask you a question, and if you're willing to be vulnerable enough and honest enough, I actually want to encourage you to answer the question by a show of hands, all right? And I'll just even prep you that that my answer to this question is that my hand will be in the air, not to model it for you, but to actually, because this will be true of me, the question I'm about to ask, all right? Let me just ask, how many of you have ever at one time or another in your life doubted the existence of God? Raise your hand. Now, here's what I want you to leave them up, and I want people to look around, not to catch who is and who isn't, but I want you to see how many hands in church are up, okay? Love it. Here's, here's how I ask that question. Here's why I love seeing that. See, we, we tend to have this idea, and I think it comes straight from the evil one. I think that Satan loves to twist truths. He loves to make us think things that aren't real, that aren't true, and I think that Satan loves to make us think that in the church, you cannot be both a believer and have doubts, <laughs> Because I've never actually heard it said in church. I've never had somebody tell me, oh, you can't be a believer in doubt. But what I know is that so many of us are afraid when we struggle or we have doubts or we're questioning or we're going, okay, God, because of this in my life, I wonder where are you? And if you would let this happen, then why this? And where are you in this, God? But we feel like, oh, I can't talk about that. I can't share that. Because somehow in the church, there's become this reality that you're not supposed to have doubts and be a believer, (laughs) And I just don't think that's true. And in fact, um, the truth of the matter is, is I want to give you some examples today from Scripture of people who were believers and had doubts. One of the most common is somebody who in the nickname that he's been given is the word doubting, right? Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. He's one of the 12 disciples. You already said it. Good job. Grade A students right there. Those are the show-offs, and then there's the rest of us. That's fine, all right? Those are type A personalities, right? You're like, yep. So, so, but it's, it's doubting Thomas, right? It's in his name. He's one of the 12 disciples, but he doubted. In fact, let me tell you where that comes from, all right? There's a passage of scripture where Jesus appears to the disciples, but Thomas isn't there. And the disciples try to tell Thomas, that, and this is after Jesus has died, and then he's risen from the grave, and they try to tell Thomas, we saw the risen Christ, and he's like, no, you didn't. <laughs> and essentially, he's like, I got to see him myself. I, I need to actually touch his hands and his side where he was pierced, if I'm going to believe. Let me show you how, how the disciple John, who wrote the book of John, let me, let me show you how he summarizes the story. He says, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. They're like, Thomas, just trust us. Just believe us. Like we saw, like we're not making this up, all right? We wouldn't do that. But watch how he responds. This is Thomas' response. But he, Thomas, said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. (laughs) Thomas is a believer. Thomas is one of the 12 disciples. He's one of the closest to Jesus. Like, like this guy's legit, right? But he's doubting. Now, just in case some of you were like, well, maybe something's wrong with Thomas, right? Like maybe he, you know, he's the not as bright disciple or something, you know, and that's why. Let me show you what happens a few days later. A few days later, Jesus appears to all 12 disciples together. And in the book of Matthew, Matthew, one of the 12 who was there, he summarizes it this way. I want you to see what happens, all right? It says, when they saw him, they as the 12 disciples, him as Jesus, when the disciples saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. I love this. 
I love this. The first thing I love is that here's the disciples. They're all together, and suddenly the risen Christ appears to them. Jesus, who was dead and is now alive, appears to them. And so the only thing they could do is to worship him, which makes sense. They're like, I don't know what else to do. Jesus is right here. Let's worship him. (laughs) And so I love it. So they worshiped him and, and what? Doubted. (laughs) They worshiped him and some of them doubted. This isn't just Thomas. (laughs) It's at least two of them, right? It's plural. Some of them, not one of them. Some of them doubted. So it's not that all of them doubt it. So if you're here today and you didn't raise your hand earlier, good for you. That's awesome. That's a blessing that you've been able to walk through life like that. If you're here today and you did raise your hand, that's okay. (laughs) So would some of the disciples. So would some of the disciples. They saw him, worshipped him, and some still doubted. See, we kind of get into this binary way of thinking where it's like we think that you either have faith, you either believe, or you have doubts, but you can't have both. But the truth of the matter is what we see in Scripture is we see people with both. And instead what we see is that there's this tension and there's these questions that we carry and we carry these questions all the time because there's this great little line uh, because you can't just get rid of your doubt sometimes. And I love, I love there's this little line in the book of Jude, just a tiny little line that demonstrates that God knew we would have doubts. So let me show you, Jude verse 22, all right, short little book, just says, be merciful to those who doubt, <laughs> In other words, God knew, God knew you were going to doubt. He's already looking out for you. He's like, those of you that didn't raise your hand, <laughs> be merciful to those of us that did. <laughs> God knew that there was going to be times that we were going to struggle and have doubt. So he says, all right, hey, be merciful to those that struggle. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to explore our questions and our doubts today. And we're going to do that by looking into a book in the Old Testament called the Book of Lamentations. And this is a great little book that most people, like you could start to flip through the Old Testament and flip right on by it and not even see it. All right, not even, it's like a hidden little gem that most people have never read. You've never read it because it's near the end of the Old Testament and we tend to quit and give up before we get there. Or you've never read it because it's called Lamentations. And you're like, that sounds boring. (laughs) Give me like Daniel in the lion's den. Where's that, right? You know, like give me Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown in a fire and then suddenly Jesus shows up. That sounds good, right? But nobody's like, you know what I just feel like reading today is a whole bunch of lament. That would just, something really negative would be great today. Like, you know, and so most people have never written through it. But I'll tell you, it's an incredibly important book. It's, it's important for a couple of reasons. One, I'll tell you, that, 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 that in, in the Jewish realm, they've been reading through this book for years. It's an insight for them in how to deal with grief and heartache and pain and sorrow and loss. <laughs> but it's an important book because it's in the Bible And I want you to see how the author deals with God. There's going to be some scripture we're going to read today. You're going to be like, can they say that? And the truth is, I don't know, but it's in the Bible. So I I guess, yes, you can say that to God. I wouldn't. No, I mean, like, no, the truth is there's things in here that I go, I have now learned to pray (laughs) like lamentations. That there are times that I've said things just like what's in here. So we're going we're to dive into this book to learn how to do this. Before we dive in, let me tell you a couple things about this book of the Bible. Scholars don't know who wrote it. We're not certain about who wrote the book of Lamentations, but we do know when it was written. And, and so we do have an idea of the kind of person that wrote it. See, it was written about 600 years before Jesus came. And in the year 587 B.C. is the year that a young king, a young arrogant awful, evil king with the name of Nebuchadnezzar from a neighboring nation 
the nation of Babylon, came and attacked Judah, where God's people, where the Israelites were. It attacked the nation of Judah, the nation of Israel attacked them, and specifically honed in on attacking the capital city of Jerusalem. And when Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem, they wiped it out like had never been wiped out before. Now, Jerusalem had been attacked in the past, but they had never seen anything like this. Houses were destroyed and burned down. Families were destroyed. When they came through, they didn't just wipe out the soldiers. They killed the women and they killed children too. Then they went to the temple, the temple that King Solomon had built, the temple that was a sign, a symbol of God's presence. It was believed that literally the presence of God was there in that temple, the place where the relics and the remembrances, the things they brought with them to say, remember when God showed up here? Let's bring that, put that in the temple. Remember when God was here? Everything that solidified their faith, the very thing that said, this is why we believe there's a God who loves us, a God who will rescue us, a God who cares for us, that was the temple. And with When Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon came through, they took relics out of the temple, they mocked God, and they burned the temple down. Jerusalem had never seen anything like this. In fact, just to give you an idea of just how they felt, I want you to think about whatever it is that maybe that thing or those things that help you with your faith. Maybe there's a person that you always look to and you're like, they're so strong that when I begin to doubt, I just look to them. Maybe, maybe it's just your Bible that you're like, when I begin to struggle and lose it, I'm just so thankful I've got this and I open it up and I read through it. Maybe, maybe it's your life change group that you're in and you're like, I don't know what I would do without them. But think about that thing or those things that for you remind you that there's a God who loves you that there's a God who's a rescuer, that Jesus is your savior. Take all of those things that are that symbol and that sign of it for you and now imagine that in one day and in one moment all of that is wiped out. (laughs) That's what just happened to Jerusalem. That's what just happened. And now the author of Lamentations is somebody who survived that attack and decided to write about it decided to talk about the inexplicable and try to make sense of it. So the book of Lamentations, I want you to understand, it's a book that is written by people who are not okay, two people who are not okay, and four people who are not okay. So let's start by jumping into Lamentations. Chapter one, right off the bat, verse one, let's read and see what it has to say. It says, how deserted lies the city. It's talking about Jerusalem. Once so full of people, How like a widow is she who was once great among the nations? She was queen among the provinces, has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night, tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. I could go on, I could keep reading from Lamentations. The text just kind of seems to roll on over and over from verse to verse in this same kind of way. And I want you to notice a few things about the scripture here. There's no nice theological opening. There's no like nice or kind words for God. Like if you read through scripture enough, what you tend to notice is most books in the Bible, most letters that are in the Bible begin in some way or shape or form acknowledging God. He's a good God. He's a great God. He's a big God. Oh, remember when he did this? Remember when he did that? Oh, we should honor God. And then it's kind of like, and so we're going to follow God because he's an amazing God. And then a few chapters in, you might get into some problems. In Lamentations, the author here is like, forget that. (laughs) We were just decimated and destroyed. Life is a mess. I'm trying to figure out if God exists or not. Let me tell you what happened in Jerusalem. And just dives into it. And we get this stark description of loss. 
It says this crowded city, <laughs> now empty. It talks about a once powerful nation that now is powerless. And then it talks about the queen who ruled over nations is now like a slave. That's the description that they're giving of Israel. And alongside this description of loss, there's this expression of isolation. You see in the scripture, it says that there's no one to comfort her. What's interesting about those words is that in the first two chapters of Lamentations, five different times the author writes those words. There's no one to comfort her. 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 Have you ever noticed that when you're going through pain in life, it's incredibly isolating? That when you're going through some kind of difficult situation or loss, some kind of experience in life that is a hardship, it's isolating. And it doesn't matter how many other people come along and say, oh, I've been through that. Oh, I remember when I lost my parent. Oh, I remember when I lost my job. Oh, I remember when we went through this. Oh, I've had a kid that was sick. Oh, I've dealt with mental illness. Oh, I've had, and, 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 and it doesn't matter how many people come along and they've got a similar story. You still sit there and go, yeah, but yours isn't like mine. Because <laughs> you don't have my emotions. You don't have my problems. You don't have my family. You don't have my friends. You don't have, and, and it doesn't matter who comes along. Pain will always try to isolate you. We'll always try to keep you from others. It's incredible how isolating it is, and the writer of Lamentations understands this, and so over and over and over again, the writer was saying, there was no one to comfort her. Because church, when you're going through pain, is that not sometimes exactly how you feel? No one understands what I'm going through. There's no one to comfort me. And so in those moments, I can just feel like we're so alone. And so I would suggest to you that I think the real question at the opening of the text of the book of Lamentations, the real question that it's asking is this right here. God, how come this happened? God, how come this happened? The first word in the Hebrew that gets translated here is the word how. How devastating, how painful. In the Hebrew, it's actually a question word. It's, it's how come this happened, God? How could you let this happen? How come we're going through this, God? God, you could have shown up, but you didn't. That's essentially what it's saying. And in many ways, that's what we say too when we go through heartache and hurt and pain, right? We tend to be like, God, you could have shown up, but you didn't. God, you could have done this, but you didn't. God, you could have fixed that, but you didn't. God, you could have, but you didn't. Have you ever said that in your life? Have you ever found yourself in a place where over and over again, you're kind of like, God, you could have. Sure feels like you could have, but you didn't. God, you could have saved this marriage, but you didn't. God, God you, you, you could have prevented this loss in my life. I know you could have. I know you have the power. I know you had the ability, but for some reason, you didn't. God, I've prayed the same prayer over and over and over again every single day, and yet you still have not answered that prayer, at least not yet. But I know you could. You could have, but you didn't. God, you could have, but you didn't. The next thing that begins to happen in our scripture is that the author of Lamentations begins to kind of move through two sort of categories of how you respond to heartache and hurt and pain and loss in your life. And these two different categories are unique. The, the first one is, is he begins to talk about confession, and the second one talks about complaint. And we're going to start with confession because that's where the author of Lamentations begins. And so what happens is that the first kind of way that he expresses this is that he begins to say that the calamity that Jerusalem was experiencing 
was at least in part in some way self-inflicted. He's saying that what Jerusalem was experiencing was the result of their own actions, choices, and decisions. Let me show you. Lamentations chapter 1 verse 8 says this. Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. All who honored her despise her for they have all seen her naked. She herself groans and turns away. See, Israel is having to take a hard look in the mirror. Now let me be clear, not all heartache and pain that we deal with in life is somehow self-inflicted. But sometimes we're awfully quick to remove ourselves and to say, it's not my fault, it's somebody else's fault. It has nothing to do with me, God, you better show up. When the truth of the matter is sometimes we need to take a look at ourselves in the mirror and go, now hold on, let me see. And so that's what's happening here. Is the author of Lamentations is reflecting a mirror onto the Israelite people. And he's saying, hey, hold on a second. Because you see, for years leading up to this cataclysmic moment in history when Jerusalem is destroyed and ransacked, for years Israel had fallen into more and more sin, more and more idolatry. And so the nation that was supposed to be known for honoring God, the nation that was supposed to be known for loving its neighbor and for caring for the poor is now instead known for its economic oppression, its judicial corruption, its political factions, and instead the poor become outcasts that are left to the sides and left in the margins of life. Does that sound familiar? Israel had fallen into this insane corruption. And a part of what they were experiencing was simply the consequences of that. See, God's covenant, his agreement with Israel was, I will be your God and you will be my people. He says, I will go with you and, and, and I will walk with you and I will protect you and I will love you. And he says, he says but, 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 but you've got to be accountable. You've got to be accountable Another way of saying this, it says you'll see this theme throughout Scripture, this idea that God says, I want to be your people, and I will go with you and bless you and follow and protect you. But he says, but you're accountable for the choices you make, too. In the book of Galatians, Paul says it this way. It's the exact same thing. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. He's saying, look, look, you don't get to, to make bad choices in life. You don't get to just sin, and they'll go, okay, God, come clean up my mess for me. Now, don't get me wrong. What I'm about to dive into is not the same as forgiveness. When we sin, we get forgiveness. When you sin and you ask God to forgive you, he forgives you. But that doesn't mean there's not some natural consequences sometimes for the sin that we commit in life. And God's not just this thing that you get to mock and make, because like, that's what he's like. He's like, look, to, to mock God is to just sin over and over and over again and then go, okay, God, I've created this problem with my sin, but I need you to rescue me from it. In fact, if you don't rescue me from it, then I'm going to have doubts about you. But if you'll just rescue me from it, then, then I'll never doubt you again, God. You and I will be good. And he's saying, look, look, you can't mock God like that. It doesn't work that way. You reap what you sow, and so we can't, just at our own discretion, take advantage of God's love and his grace and his mercy. Sometimes we have to look ourselves in the mirror and say, is it possible that a part of this is my fault? And when I go through difficulties, here's what I've learned in life. When I go through difficulties, it is so easy for me to say, well, I know where the problem is. It's out there, right? Like if I've got a problem at work, like let's say that Pastor Evan is driving me nuts, because that makes sense. And... <laughs> And, and he and I are having problems. You know where I first go? My first thought is, well, well something's wrong with Evan, right? The problem is not with me. It is not, it's not me. It couldn't be, it couldn't be me. It's got to be him. That tends to be where we all start. 
When there's a problem, when there's a difficulty, we all look outside of us and go, it's them, it's their problem. What if that's not the case? What if you need to hold a mirror up to yourself and recognize that maybe, just maybe, a part of this is my own fault? In a way, it's like God is saying to us, hey, look, maybe the problem isn't that someone out there is the problem. (laughs) Maybe the problem isn't the person at work who's bugging you, but the problem is the impatience in your soul. Maybe the problem isn't that marriage is difficult. Oh, it is, but maybe the problem in your marriage is that you're being selfish and you've got an ego. Maybe the problem isn't the attitude of your coworker, but the problem is your attitude. Maybe the problem isn't that parenting is hard. Oh, it is, but the problem is that you're just choosing to not put in the time or the effort or the energy. See, sometimes we need to hold up a mirror to ourselves and recognize that sometimes the situation we're in is because of us. And so God's job is not to swoop in and fix it and let us off the hook. But for many of us, our doubts about God are our way of avoiding accountability. God, if you don't fix this issue that's because of my sin, I'm gonna have doubts. And here's what I'll tell you. There are some of you who are here today that you've been walking in sin You've got some sort of sin issue in your life that you have tried to keep hidden and away from everybody else. You don't let anybody know. You don't let anybody know, but you also haven't sought forgiveness for it. And you keep trying to hide it and hide it and hide it and hide it. You might be embarrassed by it. That's why you don't want anybody else to know about it. But you've been wondering why year after year after year, it feels like your relationship with God is beginning to pull further and further and further and further apart. And church, I want to let you know it's because it's the consequence of you letting sin reign in your life. God says, I want to be right there close to you. Some of you, you've got sin that you have let reign in your life for so long. Let me tell you that you are so close to understanding how much God loves you, you just got to turn that sin over to him. There is no sin in your life that is so great that God can't forgive it. There is no sin in your life that is so great that God can't walk down a path of helping you say no to it from here on out. There is no sin that is greater than God's forgiveness. There is no evil that is greater than God's righteousness that does not exist. And so for some of you, the difference between you beginning to understand the presence of God and knowing his love and care for you is as simple as a moment of confession between you and God to say, God, I want to confess this in my life and I want to ask you to help me say no to it from here on out. So the writer of Lamentations, though, he doesn't just say that it's about it falls on us. He spends a lot of time on that commentary and holding up that mirror to us, but then he goes on. See, that's only one response, but there's another response in Lamentations, a a deeper response, a deeper reaction Because you see, sometimes the pain that we face in life doesn't make sense. Sometimes the pain that we face in life has no reason. Sometimes you're up against something and it has nothing to do with anything that you've done. And what's interesting in the book of Lamentations is that the first category seems to be all around confession. The second category seems to be all around complaint. Complaint. See, the writer of Lamentations doesn't just say, okay, God, I messed up, but the writer actually begins to accuse God. He says, okay, God, you're not doing your job. God, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. God, you're failing. 
I want you to see some of what the writer of Lamentations wrote. In chapter 3, verse 1, look at what he says about this. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. I want you to stop for a moment. He's actually saying God's wrath is on me. That's what it seems like he suggested. We're going to talk about this in a moment, about whether or not God's wrath can be on you. But this is how it feels to him. It feels like God's wrath must be on him. He says, God, he has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he, again, that's God, has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He's actually saying God is trying to hurt me. God is coming against me. This is what the writer of Lamentations is saying. This is the scripture I'm like, I'm like, gosh, can we say this? Can we pray this? And the truth of the matter is, yes, you can. You can because there's moments in life where it feels that way, doesn't it? Some of you have been there where it's felt like, okay, God, I don't know where you're at. God, it feels like you're against me. It feels like you're not helping. It feels like everything that could go wrong is going wrong. Where are you? And so I want you to understand from the scripture, when, when the author says that it's like God's wrath is on him, he's not saying that God's wrath is literally on him. Okay? Because you need to understand that when Jesus died on the cross, he settled all of that. God's wrath will never be on God's people. But what he's saying is that the hardship he's feeling in life is so hard. The loss that he's up against is so great that it feels like this must be what God's wrath would feel like. I don't know what it would feel like, but it's got to be something like this. That's how hard this hurts. That's what he's saying here. Now, I want you to notice that the writer here, he shifts to the first person, and he begins talking about his own experience, begins talking about his own life, and he begins to say, well, I was there. I saw the affliction. I experienced the pain. Implied in this question is essentially the author is saying, God, where were you? God, where were you? God, where were you when Jerusalem was ransacked? Because I was there. God, where were you when the women and children were killed because I was there? God, where were you when the temple was burned down because I was there? To put it in our own terms, it'd be saying, God, where were you when my parents divorced because I was there, I saw it. God, where were you when I lost my husband because I was there and I saw and I experienced it? God, where were you when that person who's supposed to be an authority figure and care for you didn't care for me but took advantage of me and did things to me that no one should ever have happened? God, I was there, but where in the world were you? See, that's what the author's saying here. The author is going, look, God, some horrible atrocities happened that I didn't deserve that weren't because of anything that I did. It's not because of sin. I was there. God, where were you? There's been times in our lives where the difficulty we're up against, the thing we're facing, has forced us to say exactly those words. Oh God, I'm right there. I remember. Where in the world were you? And sometimes we tend to think that like faith is supposed to be this pretty thing. We think that faith is supposed to be that you put on a happy face and you pretend that everything is okay and everything is all right. And we don't ever talk about the real problems, the real pains, the real doubts, the real questions that we have. But the writer of Lamentations uses some of the most graphic language in all of Scripture. The most graphic language of complaint and even almost contempt towards God. I want to show you some of the things throughout the book of Lamentations that the author writes about God. These are all scripture. Watch this. He goes on to say things like, hey, God, you surrounded me with hardship. Not like, oh, there was one really hard thing in my life. He's like, no, 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 God, you surrounded me with it. 
There was no way out. He goes on. He says, God, you shut up my prayer. God's not even listening to me anymore. That's how he feels. That's where he's at. He says, he made me a laughingstock. People were laughing at me for having faith in you. He weighed me down. He broke my body, gave me bitter gall to drink. He pierced my heart. He put me in darkness. The writer of Lamentations is not holding back. And here's the thing, like you would think that God would respond to this. You'd think that God would respond and have something to say that he would speak up, but he doesn't. It's interesting, the book of Lamentations, there's no retort from God. There's no response from God. There's no commentary from God whatsoever. And it's interesting because if you remember in the first week of this series, we talked about the book of Job. In the book of Job, Job throws some accusations at God, doesn't he? And then all of a sudden, God responds. And it's like, oh boy. And for a moment, you feel bad for Job. But here in Lamentations, the author keeps calling out to God, crying out, saying, God, I was there, where were you? God, I was there, where were you? And the only response he gets is silence from God. I got to tell you, I think I'd rather be Job. I've been there in life or you face a hardship. It doesn't make sense. You don't understand. You're like, God, how could you let this happen? I was there. Where were you? And you get silence. Have you been there? Maybe some of you are even there right now. Where you feel like you're calling out to God and it's just silence back. If that's you and that's where you're at, I just want to challenge you to listen to the story of my good friends, Jim and Lee. And I pray that you'll be challenged and encouraged by this couple who could just say, you know what, God's silence is so deafening, I have no faith, but instead choose faith. Let's watch. Um, this is my son's room. Um, this is the window that he broke. Uh, it's boarded up because it's broken. <laughs> um, this is another window because he targets that window and for his safety. Um, he's pretty much got um, plywood all around his room um, to cover up holes. Um, here, just recently, um, he kicked through this wall into my office, and um, yeah. <laughs> and then there's there's literally holes all over the place. Jim. Uh, we've been, uh, this is Lee, my wife. We've been attending Faith Church now since uh, 2014. We have uh, two children. Um, our oldest is Major. Um, he's 16 years old. And then we have um, Jenna, um, who is 12. You know, Major was born in 2002. He was, you know, when he, when he was, of course, born, he, uh, it was a difficult pregnancy. Um, at two, he started uh, with some self-injury. He was diagnosed with um, bipolar disorder at five, um, then uh, ADHD, um, oppositional defiant disorder, and then um, autism diagnosis came at around nine, ten years old, and then um, 
it's a schizoaffective. Schizoaffective is kind of a combination of uh, schizophrenia and bipolar. Major's diagnosis is, um, has changed her family greatly, the dynamics of it. We always have to have um, at least two adults in the home at all times, um, whether it's myself and my husband um, or myself and um, one of Major's uh, direct care workers. It's kind of a line of defense for me. <laughs> um, they help keep me safe um, because Major, um, he's six foot two and a half. And, uh, 235 pounds. Ish, yeah. Yeah. And I'm but five four on a good day. Um, and I'm the one he targets um, the most. And by target, um, talking um, verbally abusive and physically um, attacking. Being a father, husband, my I always feel my job is to protect my wife, protect my family. And so when he starts getting in one of those rages or gets violent, I automatically put myself in between. Um, I've been physically injured many times. Um, over here, um, this is where my son put my, attempted to put my son, uh, husband through the wall um, because my husband was trying to protect me and he went after my husband in an attempt to get to me. Our daughter has, um, has to have a safety plan. She follows. Yeah, she has a safety plan. She also has a reinforced door, steel, you know, um, kick steel kick plates on the door and the door jammed. Um, so, because he has tried to get to her before, um, he's actually broken doors trying to get to her. Three doors. Um, yeah, we've gone through about three doors now. Worst case scenario, um, her safety plan is if he starts to get upset, she goes out her bedroom window, um, and we have. Um, neighbors that are what we call a safe house that she will run to. Um, and here we have to have all of our cabinets locked up. Um, chemicals are locked up, meds are locked up. Um, it's pretty much Fort Knox in this area. All medications are locked up. Um, all cords for the majority of them are, are locked up because he recently had um, two suicide attempts. Um, the first being he overdosed on one of his medications. Um, the second being he took um, um, strings on a backpack and uh, attempted to wrap them around his neck. I say you, you have to trust in God. Um, you know he, even if you think nothing is going right, there has to be that trust that he will provide the way. Um, he will get you through. Um, so you just have to constantly believe that he will find the way. Um, he will have the answers for you. Whether it's in the time frame that you want, maybe not, but he will have the answers. I feel, um, in my, at least for me personally, that faith is a choice and that um, the situation, especially our situation, isn't going to change. It is what it is. It is basically what it is. It's it's going to be a, ch a challenge and a struggle um, for for sure most of or for the rest of our lives most likely. Yeah. But I choose to have faith in God because I feel like that's the only choice I have. I mean, it if if I didn't have my faith, I I, I would be lost. I truly feel that if it weren't for God and um, my walk with God that I wouldn't be here.
because our situation is so um, hopeless um, looking in um, that we have no other choice to, to keep our faith in God. <clears throat> These are the moments as a pastor that uh, I wish I had the answers. I wish I could explain to them, this is why you're going through that, or this is why God would allow that, or let me try to show you, here's where God's at work in that. I, I wish this was where I had the words when somebody says that right now life seems hopeless to somehow pull them out of that hopelessness. The only thing I can come up with is I just go, boy, you know, God has to be doing some work somewhere in there for the two of them to say we still trust and we choose faith. I love, I love what Jim said when Jimmy said, you know, you just have to believe that God has the answers even though they don't come in the timing that we want. And it's so true. And this brings us to our so what moment. So what does this mean? What do we do with this? Where do we go from here? Well, at some point in all of our lives, we're going to hit a moment where there's no longer that middle ground, where we're going to have to choose what is faith and what isn't faith. For a long time, I used to think that faith was this nice, warm, fuzzy feeling, that faith was this really good thing, like, oh, you know, like, yep, I have faith in Jesus, and I could tell people all the time, I've got faith in Jesus. But what I've begun to learn over and over again in time as I've gotten older is that faith isn't just some kind of an answer, <laughs> But the truth of the matter is, is, is faith is exactly what you heard Lee said. She said, I have to choose to have faith. You see, faith is a choice. It's a choice we make when we're all out of answers. It's not just a feeling of trust. It's the choice that we make when we feel like we can't trust any longer. The book of Lamentations, let me tell you, church, it begins with questions, it ends with questions, and I promise every one of you, if you came in today, we're not going to answer all your questions. You're going to leave and you're going to still have some questions. But in the middle of the book of Lamentations, the author begins to use these haunting words about choice. The author realizes there's no more middle ground. That they're going to have to decide what to choose to put their faith in or not in the midst of their difficulty. I want to show you their words here. The author says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I will remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So what brings us hope? How does the author of Lamentations find hope? It says, because of the Lord's great love. And we're not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He's talking to God when he says this, when he writes this. He says, great, God, great is your faithfulness. You see, faith is not about forgetting about the past. It's not about ignoring the hardship. What he's saying is he's saying, look, look, faith is acknowledging those things. And then when you're in the midst of them, faith is about what you call to mind. So when you're in the midst of a situation and you're going, you know what? I have to call to mind that the same God who's allowing this to happen, who's letting this take place, is the same God whose love is going to help me not get consumed by the pain of this. The God who hasn't answered my prayers yet like I want him to is the same God who tomorrow is going to bring new mercies and new answers. The same God who it feels like, boy, did you mess up, God, is the same God who says, I love you unconditionally. You just got to trust me. See, faith is choosing to believe and there's no reason left to believe. I love understanding faith through the eyes of the disciples. 
See, what you've got to understand is that when Jesus went to the cross and when he died, the disciples thought it was done and it was over. The disciples didn't understand we understand. See, sometimes we miss this. When we think of the crucifixion and Jesus' death and resurrection, we know what happens. When Easter comes and Good Friday comes, we know he rises. We know there's Easter Sunday. You've got to understand, the disciples didn't know. The disciples' faithfulness failed. When Jesus died, the disciples walked away and they thought God messed up. Church, some of you right now are in a situation like that. I want you to understand some of you are in such hardship that you are stuck somewhere between the crucifixion and the resurrection. That the hardship that you are facing in life is so overwhelming that you're stuck saying, God, where were you? God, I was there. Where were you? And you're stuck going, God, I think you failed. I think you messed up. And what you don't know is there's a resurrection coming. What you haven't seen is that there's a new day and a new morning and new mercies that are coming. And what faith is, is faith is to say, I'm going to choose in the midst of that hardship to still trust. But you've got to understand, just like the disciples, your faithfulness will fail you. <laughs> Which is why it is so important that we know your hope does not reside in the strength of your faith. Your hope is in the strength of God's faithfulness. My flesh may fail, but my God, he never will. And so church, let me just tell you, if you are here today and life is not okay right now, and you're walking through a hardship and a difficulty, if you're not okay in this moment, all that means is it's not the end. That's what that means. It means it's not the end. It means the new morning hasn't come. The resurrection hasn't happened. It's not the end because let me tell you, when Jesus returns, everything changes. That's how I know it's not the end because in the end, his faithfulness will be greater than your problems. That's the definition of Jesus' return. When he returns, all who are sick will be made well. Those who are hurt, the pain will go away. If you're here today and all is not right, it just means it's not the end. And your choice is to choose faithfulness. Not your faithfulness. His. Because great is his faithfulness. And so church, as we close today, here's what I want us to do. Would you stand with me right now? All of us stand together and would you sing that old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness.